let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Kelsey Whittle, Senior Editor of Healthpayer Intelligence and Multimedia Manager at Extelligent Healthcare Media. Value-based care is rooted in collaboration between healthcare industry stakeholders. Cooperation and communication are absolutely unavoidable in this endeavor, but after years of working toward a value-based care system and adopting a more patient-centered approach to care, the necessary step of bridging the silos of this industry remains a challenge. Crystal Eubanks, Senior Director of Care Redesign at the Purchaser Business Group on Health, PBGH, is here to tell us about one effort in California that seeks to advance value-based care through effective collaboration. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So to start out, could you begin by telling us about the relationship between PBGH and the California Quality Collaborative, CQC, and also just sharing a little bit more about your role with these organizations? Sure. Yes. So maybe I'll start with, I mean, my official title is Senior Director of Care Redesign at PBGH. So in that role, I lead uh, one of the kind of multiple change levers that we have for improving quality in the healthcare delivery system. So within PBGH, there's policy, right? There's measurement, there's engaging the purchasers. And then I lead a team, the care redesign team, portfolio of work that intersects directly with the delivery system. In that role, I also lead the California Quality Collaborative, which is a program of PBGH. Has always, I, I laugh, it's always been within PBGH, but in the last two years, we've been more explicit about the connection between CQC and PBGH. So CQC is actually a multi-stakeholder group. So we have a steering committee that is made up of leaders in the delivery system within California that are focusing on change within California. This evolved from PBGH, used to be the Pacific Business Group on Health, and is now the Purchaser Business Group on Health, as it evolved into a national organization. But we've retained a focus and direct efforts in California. The multi-stakeholder group is made up of health plans. It is made up of provider organizations. We have many other partners that include patient advocacy organizations, purchasers, and so that looks like um, many of our kind of public purchasers, like the Exchange Cover California, our Medicaid organization, as well as private purchasers and employers. And then we have other partners that are, are experts in data, philanthropy groups that are interested in advancing quality. So we bring this group together, and its history came about to say at a time when California was getting organized and working together and implementing a statewide performance incentive program through an organization I call our sister organization, but Integrated Healthcare Association, IHA, many people know this. And CQC was created within, at that time, Pacific Business Group on Health to be the other arm that was doing the improvement work. So based on what's showing up in the data and all that coming out, where are our opportunities to improve, that there's another organization that goes out and works directly with the delivery system, um, with the providers and the care teams to help improve that performance on those measures. So that was CQC's original intention. And health plans came together with provider organizations to partner and say, how do we do this together? This is a common issue. We share a delivery system, right? Many of these providers and practices are contracted with multiple health plans, multiple you know, intermediary provider organizations like um, independent physician associations, 
um, or medical groups. And so we share this delivery system. We can't solve this alone. So how do we come together and prioritize the support that they need of all the measures and the improvement we need to align? We can't send them in different directions and <laughs> different focus areas. So they've been doing that for a couple of decades now with this focus on technical assistance. And then with this work, part of that work is realizing that you can do a lot of technical assistance, but until you remove some of the upstream barriers, the system barriers, it's hard to make that even more effective and really deliver on the hopes and potential uh, for the practices. So that's how CQC has evolved from this coming together around technical assistance and improvement collaboratives in different parts of the state focused on chronic disease management or telehealth to how do we actually work together as entities that define and make up the system to remove those barriers so that it is easier for practices to deliver on the care and, and the expectations that we're setting forth. Yeah, excellent. And so, I mean, how has that been going? Like, what have been some of the outcomes of this strategy? It seems like you're bringing in people from all sorts of spaces in the industry. So I'm just curious, like, what kinds of outcomes you're seeing from that collaboration? I know that's a broad question, probably. <laughs> it is. I think there's a long history of, of bringing folks together that are usually competitors, right? Mm-hmm. And to build the trust and relationship that comes out of that dialogue. And we're bringing like-minded folks together. These are quali- people that are passionate about quality improvement, building that foundation of trust and, and CQC being the neutral convener there. So when they come, they can, they don't always fully take off the competitive hat, but to some degree, right? For this collaborative problem solving. So the outcomes, I think originally, we've had many improvement collaboratives focused on, like I said, chronic disease care. So improving measures in diabetes and hypertension, as well as total cost of care. Mm-hmm. And I'll speak specifically in my history, because I came on board to CQC about six years ago to work on a statewide technical assistance program it was funded by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services called Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative. And there were 29 transformation networks across the country, and CQC was leading one statewide in California. And I was leading our technical assistance work, and we were developing practice coaches. We touched 4,500 providers, and it was about 3 million Californians. And it was literally from the top border next to Oregon down to the bottom border, right outside of San Diego. And we worked intensively with practices over four years, and the outcome of that program was that we were able to demonstrate cost savings of $180 million over those four years. And most of that came from reduced hospitalization, right, inpatient ED across this network of folks to say, look, we were able to do that. And we came together as a group, as our CQC steering committee of all these leaders. And we said, and and there were other networks within California that also had incredible results. And I thought, I think we're unique to the landscape in California. And we said, this is amazing. Now this funding and programs coming to an end, how do we keep this acceleration moving and continue focusing on advancing primary care? We now know very deeply and with data that what it takes to be in a, you know, a high-performing practice, but yet it's still a narrow number, right? Despite all that improvement, there's a narrow number that are high-performers. So how do we make more practices high-performers and accelerate this and do it on our own without federal funding? And so I I remember this meeting, it was in Oakland, California, it was 2019, and we were talking about, we need to keep this going, and we actually need to define some standards and come to common agreement, right, and this is what we can all do together. There's no competition in defining what advanced primary care means. You Google it, there's like 
three or four definitions to start. So like, let's just come up with a statewide standard. It started as an intellectual exercise, but intended to be, if we want to drive rewarding practices for achieving a high-level performance, we need to know how to define it. So we work through attributes of advanced primary care that you would see in a practice. And from the mindset of a patient, like I, if you're a patient calling and shopping for a, a primary care practice, what would you want to ask that they have that you would know as a patient, right? So we defined that and then we said, okay, great. We had the definition. How would we know if we saw it in measurement? And then we worked over 18 months to come up with a common measure set that everyone could agree to. And I say everyone by this is health plans, this is providers and purchasers, because they all have different things that they need out of the system. And so how do you come up with a practice level measure set? We kind of said, okay, what's the biggest issue? It is payment, right? And in the room, everyone pointed at each other, little fingers pointing at each other about who's responsible for the payment. And I said, okay, we can't, we can only do so much technical assistance for so long. It's not going to get us there. We actually need to change the way uh, the business incentives are there, you know, to go out to practice and think we just need to keep educating them. (laughs) That's, That's patronizing. Yeah. That's not the issue, right? It's not that people are change resistant. I did not find that in my work in practices. It's that they really don't have align business incentives to make this happen. And it just seems to be a lose-lose for them that the harder they work, (laughs) the harder it is for them Mm -hmm. in primary care. And it's just not realistic to expect substantial clinical care change, right? And workflow as well as business operations. And to do that while in the midst of taking care of patients, right? And still meeting all those expectations. Yeah. So I said, okay, we've got we've got to drive payment. And so that was the impetus of we need to move our discussions in CQC beyond technical assistance and prioritizing those and best practices, which is important, but we all control the payment. <laughs> right. That sounds like that was a pretty pivotal time frame of digging down and bringing people into the same room and being honest about where the issues lie and changing business practices. I'm curious about how CQC then went about implementing that. Um, how did you then change and create alignment in these business practices where there was none? And what lessons came out of that process? Again, a very big question. I'm sure there's a lot there, but what were some of the key points that you sure. found? I think the key points was we in the room and with purchasers being on the room. And I, I said, that, that's really critical because that's where payment starts. And so the variation that compounds within the system, that variation starts at the top with the purchasers. And so that's where PBGH and the purchaser you know, side of the house took that to heart and said, okay, we've got to do our work to align purchasers. They can't be asking for different things, right? They're going to ask for different measures and then health plans have to deliver on that. And it not only creates more administrative burden and this, you know, non-value add that takes away from care and then increases costs, but then the signals don't cascade and align way to the front lines. So to ask the health plans to align and do that without the purchasers doing it first can, <laughs> cannot be done. <laughs> so they started a, through PBGH of convening the purchasers. And when I say purchasers, that includes large employers. It includes the, when I say the public purchasers, but thinking about the state exchanges in California, cover California, Medicaid, and then we have CalPERS, the pension, big pension <laughs> uh, <laughs> statewide, um, a very large purchaser. We had a great partner in covered California. And a parallel to some of this effort, they had been asking, we want to be forward thinking. We want to write into our contracts requirements that set the stage for rewarding high-performing practices, right? We want to reward what we want to see more of. 
for them, it didn't feel like PCMH, right, patients in our medical home recognition was the way to do that. Some other states have chosen that, but they didn't feel like that was the right thing within California, very uneven adoption of that. And most importantly, it's, a, it, it's not always showing the outcomes, right? You're, you're checking all the boxes in the nature of the certification is very burdensome for our providers. So how can we not add to that burden, not require that burden, and then know that we're getting the outcomes that, we're, that we want to pay for? So we said, well, then, then let's define the measure set. What is the measure set? And we know that on certain measures, if you see high performance in, for instance, diabetes control, right, blood pressure control, immunizations, you know all the processes are functioning in those practices. They're present. Right. And so I think about the elements of a patient center medical home, team-based care, right? Care coordination, that you're using data to drive performance. I don't need to measure all those processes because if you're hitting great outcomes, great performance on diabetes control, those things are there because you can't do it without them. So why why ask about all those things? So that's what we we're driving this like, okay, let's come up with a measure set that Cover California could use to put into their contracts to require their health plans to report on performance of those metrics. But more granularly, how do we know which practices and that you're, in, you're increasing the number of practices that are performing at that level? That was a challenge. That's a challenge for us as a state. While we have robust measurement, particularly through IHA of health plans and provider organizations, we don't have it at the practice level mm. and that visibility. So that was our challenge. And then the other employers were saying, yes, we want this too, because we want to drive our employees to high-performing primary care, right? And we recognize that their strategy as purchasers is saying, we want to reduce total cost of care. <laughs> we're not happy with that. But we will increase investments in primary care knowing that that is the strategy by which you reduce costs elsewhere, right? In hospital and specialty. While we will not tolerate increases in total cost of care, we will increase our investments in primary care. It's one thing for a purchaser to say that. How do you actually change that within the system? So this was the dialogue that the plans have been working together. We came up with this common measure set. We say the purchasers are putting in their contracts. Now the health plans have to put it in their contracts to flow that down. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not simply the measure set. That's just our kind of litmus test of how things are performing, but there's some other things that need to drive that. In parallel, IHA had been going through some efforts with their membership, which is the same membership as CQC, but it's often different leaders. We have quality folks. They often have data folks and, and other leaders, and there's a little bit of overlap too. But they were going through a parallel effort of payment model design. Like, can we come up with a standard payment model for primary care that we could all have to agree to that's you know a high-level model that still enables plans and other payers to you know compete with each other but is there a certain that really is going to drive change within a panel because for one plan to change doesn't change for a provider they're like great that's 20 percent of my total patient population i can't make substantial infrastructure investments change my staffing by a new ehr it system on a 20% change. Yeah. <laughs> so knowing that we, IHA and CQC partners so often, we said, why don't we come together and combine these efforts with organizations and actually drive towards agreement across the health plans so that a provider at the end of the day would see a substantial change in their panel. So if, they, if they're paid differently for care and in value-based care, and it's not just performance incentives, right? We need to change to prospective flexible payments that they would see enough change in their panel that, that it actually make it feasible for them to make this business change. 
And so that was that was the let's let's come together, let's bring the plans together. We had this long history of collaboration, but a very recent history of coming up with some very concrete consensus <laughs> on things. And so we had the momentum. COVID, I think, was a, a definitely impetus of like, we can't lose this opportunity. Primary care, it's having its moment. We see the value, we see the cost of not having great primary care. Uh, we also see that we can act quickly when we really want to. <laughs> so let's do it. And we had seen some efforts afoot in other states, and particularly uh, Washington state had done something similar in coming up with an agreement amongst plans. And so we took that as our foundation and build upon that. I'm all for, what is it, um, stealing and copying shamelessly <laughs> and building on it. So we took that. We had the folks from Washington come and talk to the CQC folks and throw down the gauntlet to say, okay, let's see what you guys can do in California. <laughs> and we ran with that and said, you know, and parties like, I I'm an impatient person. And I think that's what makes me good at my job. It also makes me <laughs> constantly frustrated, but it drives me. And I was like, other places took years. And I was like, we, and we took 18 months to talk about membership. We need change now. Yeah. Right. Um, so we said, let's see what we can do in five months. <laughs> I, I don't really know why. I was just like, can we do something by, uh, it's like, this was at the end of uh, 2021. I was like, if we start convening plans in January, and we put a, like an end date by the end of May. Let's see where we get. Hmm. How far can we drive? And wherever we get by then, that, that will be our place of moving forward. Wow. One thing that you said kind of at the beginning of that was you touched on sometimes the way it ends up coming down the pipeline is, you know, there's a lot of almost treating providers like they need to necessarily like get on board with this or they just don't understand the big picture. I've, I've heard that sometimes even within my own family or friends who are providers or in healthcare roles that they get it. But like you said, there's just, it's more so about like this alignment of incentives that's problematic and the burden that they're already facing. I was curious as you went through this five month push, how did that work when you were talking with your provider partners? What was that conversation like? And what was their response to this new way of approaching the issue? Yeah. I, so part of this process, we also took a, a kind of a new approach was we brought in particularly the IPAs, the independent physician associations as payers. So, right. The contracts for, from the purchasers and employers to the health plans who often then contract with the IPAs who then pay the providers. So even if a health plan has capitation performance incentives, the most optimal payment model what we see in, in my work through the Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative when I was talking to folks on the ground is the providers are still pay feed for service. And so those wonderful payment models don't often translate between the health plans and the IPAs. So, I mean, generally providers welcome the payment change, right? And, and wanting to see that happen and that it, it enabled them to do that. Obviously they have some concerns in the details we all do and to work that out. So that, I think we haven't come up with a payment model, right? We've, we've got a core kind of skeleton, if you will. And our next kind of efforts of work in 2023 is to actually flesh out the details of that and bring providers into those conversations. So it is a partnership and, and we're doing the optimal thing as well as addressing any concerns they have, because we agree we want to do what they need, right? So no one wants to inadvertently <laughs> make it harder for them. But I say, so we brought IPAs into the conversation as payers. We're like, you pay, you guys have to change your contracts too. This is how we cascade alignment to the front lines because the health plans alone cannot do it. So the health plans need to do it in their PPO lines of business, right? That's where they directly contract with practices. And we need the other folks that directly contract with practices and providers to change. I have to say the IPAs 
don't have a long history like the health funds have had of collaborating together. They often be in a room together, they advocate together for themselves, but actually ask them to align is relatively new. Mm. And so in the end, we only had one provider organization, Allidade, sign on to the MOU commitments. Mm. And we were hoping that we would have more of the IPAs. They are still part of the conversation and wanting to be and believe in the overall mission. But I think it takes more time for them to figure out how to come together and sit in a room with health plans where you're often adversaries, right? You're in contract negotiations to just sort of shift off of that mindset and like, how might we collaborate together? Mm-hmm. But I would say there's a lot of distrust that's there. So that's what we're still continuing to work through with the provider organizations. And that will be our... That will be our key for cascading it more widely. And I think they provider organizations have a unique, incredible role. Not only are they payers, they represent their providers. They have a dual interest to keep in mind and, and to advocate for. So I think that's an opportunity where we have to go forward and potentially learn from other states, other regions um, about how they've done that. So this is new territory for us. When we talk about value-based care, a lot of the conversation comes down to, you know, providers and payers, but a lot of what you've been saying today has obviously, given your position and where you're coming from, had a lot to do with employers and purchase as well. And I would love to just finish this conversation talking about where does the employer fit into all of this, both for CQC specifically, but also for just the value-based approach in general. And then also just touching on how your perspective as both kind of having a bit of provider background. I know you worked with a safety net provider in the past, and then also looking at your current role, working more so with employers, how that has shaped your view on value-based care. So purchasers, uh, I think are very much aligned with providers and they want the same things. They don't often talk directly to each other, right? They're often have the intermediaries of the health plans and there are things that get lost in translation. But at the end of the day, purchasers, they want value for what they pay for and they pay for a lot. <laughs> They're paying a significant price tag. So they have a both business interest, but also their employees and they want what's best for them to make sure that they're getting what they need and building those communities. And so they have this drive to not only improve care, but see the outcomes that are there. And so at PBGH, the purchasers and employers came together and actually drafted a common purchasing agreement of the things that they value. So for advanced primary care, the things that they want to see happening and that they want to pay for. And they, as they've said, they are willing to pay more for that but will not tolerate total increases in cost of care. Those need to be actually driving down. And the only way to get there, we know, is investing more in primary care and seeing the impacts of reducing the hospital specialty and other spend. So for them, they want to see an increase in the percent of total spend on primary care. So it's not enough to pay providers differently. So to sort of move from a fee-for-service to a value-based care model, that is not enough. That is taking a small percentage of the pie and shifting how you do it. It's still a small amount of money to work with. And so they've been asking within their contract requirements of starting to gather data on the total percent of spend towards primary care. And of no surprise, the data we get mirrors data from across the country is that it's as low as like 4%. So if you think about only 4 cents of every dollar, healthcare dollar, actually goes into primary care, and yet we're expecting them to do this bulk of the work and, and to see that... And that's four cents at total. What's the amount that actually ends up in a provider and a medical assistant, you know, a care team's like resource that they have to do? It's so small. Mm. 
So we can sit here all day and talk about the optimal model, but unless you also talk about investing more in primary care, you're not going to achieve these outcomes. It's still an unrealistic expectation. So they are driving forward on increasing that investment. They want to see that investment move from four to greater than 10%, right? We see in European countries, it's about 14% where they are and see these outcomes. We're not even asking for 14%, but we've got to get it to, can we get it to double digits? Yeah. <laughs> or cents of 10 cents on every dollar. So that's what they want to see happen. I think health plans and my conversations of what I've learned is they also want to see this change. It's not that they're being, again, it's not this resistance to change or being the bad guys that everyone wants to make them, right? Everyone loves to beat up on health plans. You have really great people in those organizations, leaders with vision, and they want to see this change happen. They have significant barriers internally to making that happen. And in the landscape of things, they need partners. Mm -hmm. So this is the opportunity to make that happen. In this case, what I heard, and you know, in the background of my conversations within CQC is all these health plans wanted to do it. It's hard to be the first one to step forward and do it differently. And they also knew that if they one step forward, right, and in this case, I think Blue Shield of California tried it, it actually didn't make much change because they don't control the market. There's no dominant player. So they actually, for them to win, everyone has to win, mm. right? Everyone has to do it. And so I was like, if we're all going to do it, let's hold hands and jump together. <laughs> And purchasers in a similar way of, of that's their role in the partnership is the health plans do have barriers. If you increase spend on primary care and not increase total cost of care, it has to come from someone else. Someone else is losing money. It's the hospitals. The way to actually reduce that spend is make a very small reduction in hospital spend will actually make a big increase <laughs> for primary care. So it's not even asking for that much of a reduction in hospitals, but um, hospitals are powerful. <laughs> They are great at advocating for themselves. And so this is an opportunity where I think purchasers, if they want to see the investment increase, that they actually help to help the health plans do it and partner, because I can't just think the health plans are going to flip a switch and get hospitals to agree to this. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where the next kind of evolution of the dialogue happens. From my perspective, having worked for a long time in a traditional safety net, a federally qualified health center. Um, and county systems, and then transitioning to PBGH and CQC, where in my work in the last six years, I have worked with many small practices. They're not organized. This is the hidden safety net. These are providers that all, they serve Medicaid, they serve commercial, and they serve Medicare. So again, when you take this by one line of business, it still doesn't work for them because they have these mixed panels. Mm. And what I've seen, and it's very unpopular to say, while we should be investing more in the, in the safety net altogether, the traditional safety net has gotten a lot of resources and a lot of support and has subsequently become vanguards, right, in patients in our medical home and advancing these things. And yet we have the hidden safety net where in California, they serve 70% of Medicaid, mm. the bulk, and they are not getting the support. They don't have payment parity with the rest of Medicaid. They don't get the resources. They're not even in the conversation. Mm. And so when I look at the work I do, I feel like this is understanding that situation of providers and what they deal with. Like part of my role is making that visible, helping them amplify that so that purchasers understand that. Because when an employer like a tech company or <laughs> airplane manufacturers, where their patients get care, it isn't just for them. So to just change their contracts or for commercially insured patients is not enough to actually help 
that care team change how they provide care. You have to think of a community approach. And so for me, I feel like this is an evolution of my passion for social justice to think about how do we serve those patients and communities, most of which of safety net patients in California are in these smaller practices. And that means we have to solve for the commercial side. Medicare, we can't solve them much for. <laughs> That's a different pathway. And, and Medicaid. And it's an issue of equity. This is an issue of equity. And you can't continue a gap of resourcing a small part of the safety net and not address it elsewhere. So I think this is also a theme of the work that we're doing, that it's not just to advance primary care, it's not just to pay differently, but at the root of this is you actually want to address health equity and reduce those disparities, then we have to resource the care teams that support those patients differently, right? And traditionally, they have not gotten all the technical assistance resources, the practice coaching, the capital to invest in a new population management software. They still don't. A good chunk of my job is they're still here. They're not going away. This is where the bulk of people of color get their care. So we have to come up with a system-wide solution. And then I think that that evolves the work of we are addressing them. They are in our sites. We all agree that they are an important, critical part of the delivery system. And now we have to work through some subsequent you know, equity issues of we've got to get better data <laughs> about race and that's a language in our performance metrics. And so part of our measure set that we agreed on were ones where we knew we could start to get more data and so we could dig deeper. Because when you address inequities, it, it's a community and these health plans provider, they share in the community. We have a shared delivery system. So no one will solve it alone. And no one will win unless everyone wins. That's excellent. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you a bit about how health equity factors into this because we're trying to look into how these conversations, each and every single one can either illuminate care disparities or illuminate areas where we are advancing forward. And just in our last few seconds here, you know, is there anything that you can say about how to have these conversations in a way that advances health equity and that doesn't serve as a barrier to health equity? Um, how to push value-based care forward and to form these collaborations in a way that is conscious of and always keeping at the forefront advancement of health equity? In our dialogue, we've held two objectives, if you will. And one is we want to reward high-performing care, right? We want to, if you're doing well, we want you to keep doing well. So we want to reward what we want. At the same time, we need to acknowledge and hold the reality that most practices aren't there. And many practices are working towards that. And the ones that are high performing have been historically well-resourced, right? They probably have a predominantly commercial panel, predominantly white, right? High socioeconomic level of their patients. So by simply just rewarding high performers, we will reinforce the gaps, the inequities, and we don't want to reinforce that, right? I don't, and so in our parallel efforts, besides rewarding, we need to find out where are the pockets where they are high performers and not use an approach of judgment or penalty, but to actually think about humble inquiry, right? And what can we do to help these practices move forward? Going back to technical assistance, which is the root of what we do in the support, you know, I've seen that those without deeper data and knowing around practice level performance, right, or having a consistent measure set or having the real data there, technical assistance is like a shotgun approach, right? And you put all this out there. I have seen high-performing organizations get more technical assistance resources 
more and more, right? And it's not like there's, you know, they don't need it. Let's be frank. So we need to better target the resources we have. We are in a fortunate position to have those resources. So let's better target the people that need it. So a value-based payment model and this change needs to hold, we need to reward and we need to incentivize improvement. And we need to recognize it and incentivize it. And that's sometimes the harder piece. And you can't divorce those two things. So we have to hold them simultaneously to make progress uh, in the health right? And well-being of our communities. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, for your time and for sharing these thoughts. And I'm excited to hear about what CQC does, how this continues to evolve going forward. My pleasure. I am so excited to share about what we've been doing and just um, so grateful for all the work of many people, not just me. I feel like I'm in such a fortunate position of being the convener of folks, but great partners, but the heavy lifters are within these organizations. Listeners, we would love to hear your insights on this topic as well. So if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share or any questions or topics that you think that we should cover in future episodes, please reach out to me at kwadil at intelligentmedia.com. That's K-W-A-D-D-I-L-L at intelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. And also don't forget to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production. 